Thank you very much, Phil. I would say I've set a few alarms here because once you get talking, you can lose track of time. Uh, so don't be put off if they start going off. Um, first of all, just say who I am. I'm Phil Swan. I'm a pastor of a church in West Wales in Llanelli, Llanelli Free Evangelical Church. Uh, I've just come up to 25 years there. I've been in pastoral ministry for nearly 33 years, but more significant to this session, before I started in the ministry, I was working in the NHS as a chartered physiotherapist and I specialized in the area of psychiatry. It's not an obvious fit for physios, but I was in Cardiff and Cardiff was a center of excellence for physiotherapy and psychiatry in the UK. And I was rather drawn into that, at least I thought I was. Now, as I look back, I think very much it was God's providence. PTSD really didn't become a recognized diagnosis until the beginning of the 1980s. And I was fortunate enough to run a stress management clinic in an academic unit and many of the people who I was uh, asked to care for. Uh, along interestingly, my colleague had been a Roman Catholic priest, so we were an interesting combination in the clinic. Um, but many of them were, were those suffering directly the effects of PTSD. And um, it's just been fascinating for me to maintain an interest in trauma, uh, in ministry, and now where we are today with a greater awareness of abuse and things like that and the effects on Christians to see the re-echoing so often of those things that I was seeing amongst sometimes taxi drivers who have been held up at knife point, sometimes seeing a re-echoing of some of those symptoms in Christians who sometimes are having appalling experiences of abuse of power. Who are we? Well, really like you at the end of the day, primarily, I'm a, I'm a Christian leader. My concern is to see the glory of God in the local church. And uh, to see that, I often think particularly for myself personally in two primary areas. One is the extension of the kingdom of God through the cause of the gospel triumphing in the lives of boys and girls and men and women. That's the primary one. But I also delight to see God work in broken, damaged people and his glory and the light of his glory shining into sometimes the ruins of humanity. Um, I think we need to recognize, though, as church leaders, we have a limited position here. We are not specialists, trauma therapists. We mustn't, mustn't pretend to be. And yet at the same time, I think we are invited to consider this subject in more detail than perhaps we currently are. Uh, years ago, those in ministry uh, were known as the uh, cura animarum, the, uh, the cure of souls. There was a great emphasis on ministry. Certainly, if you read back to people like the Puritans, the later Puritans, there's a massive emphasis on the application of Christian truth to struggling Christians. There is a certain degree where I think we need to recapture that uh, today. But we are limited, but at the same time, we're in a unique position because church for healing, our church communities being redemptive communities in the sense of reaching out to broken, discouraged Christians and those who are yet to know uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a tremendous privilege for us. Now, because we're limited, I want to stress right at the beginning, there will be times if we seriously engage with this issue where we will need to refer people on. And the issue of what's currently known as signposting is very important. I was speaking to a friend of mine, a Christian who's also a counselor, highly experienced. And uh, I said, what would be the big thing you'd want church leaders to know? And she said straight away that you can't sort all this out on your own. We need to be humble enough to know where our limitations are 
and that there is good help out there. But often we are the first point of contact uh, in this area. Now, I want to say again uh, at the beginning that some of the things we may talk about may be triggering. That is, they may bring back to you painful memories. I'm aware in a gathering like this, there will be those of us who are currently experiencing some of the things that we will be talking about. There'll be others who've experienced them in the past. And if you like, they are still very much with us in the present. So if at any point what I have to say is really upsetting you, don't feel awkward about walking out or doing what you need to do. All right. This is, uh, this is something we just need to be sensitive to one another about. It's in three parts, this, uh, basically. What I, oh, I ought to say as well, I, I, I pulled up these two books and mentioned them before the conference. They are in the bookstore. Um, Marcus Honeysett's book, Powerful Leaders. Marcus has done us a huge benefit here in the UK. This is a UK uh, assessment, really, of the abuse of power in local churches. And I can't recommend that book highly enough. The other one there, Suffering in the Heart of God, is um, written by Diane Langberg. She's a Christian psychologist who's worked with PTSD for over 50 years. There is a wonderful Christ-centeredness in her writings. And as well as she doesn't pull her punches about the real darkness, um, it is full of hope. And again, that book is on the bookshop there. Uh, uh, you know, I really recommend that. Sell a kidney uh, to buy that one. It's extremely valuable. Um, well, we're going to rush through to start with uh, a bit like my running when I used to run races. You know, you start off like the clappers and then in the middle you start to fade. And then in the last six miles, you tend to really slow down. And that's what I'm going to do. So the first part, we're going to rush through a few things that we just need to acknowledge, if you like, the landscape. We're then going to move secondly to look at what are the effects of trauma on us as people. Um, and then thirdly, we're going to look at some, some things to do with care. How do we care? I think at the moment where we are is that there's a great deal of information about trauma and abuse being written now in Christian circles um, in terms of identifying the issue, identifying um, uh, bad practices of power, but there's not so much being written about care. And at the end of the day, that's who we are. We're people who care and seek to care. Um, terminology is a real problem in this area. Uh, abuse, trauma, spiritual abuse, each one of these uh, terms is in some ways a little bit fraught with danger. Uh, what is abuse? How do you define it? It's one of those words everybody knows what abuse is until you sit down and actually really start to define it. And similarly, trauma. It seems today that every celebrity's had PTSD and of course, the problem with that is it becomes a devaluing of the real terminology. And maybe that's something that we can pick up in our discussion. Trauma, interestingly, comes from a Greek word for wound. We all get very excited at this point as we start thinking of the New Testament, of course, and until we discover it only appears once in the New Testament, which is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But wound is a really helpful way of thinking about trauma. I think the distinction is abuse is what is done to us or what we may do to others. Trauma is the description really of the continuing effects upon us. Now the wound that we're talking about here isn't a wound necessarily in the body, but primarily in the memory 
trauma is a wound of memory. The question, of course, you'll often hear people talk about PTSD, trauma as a disorder. We must be careful about pathologizing trauma. Uh, medics won't look at the idea of PTSD till at least four to six weeks has passed. In other words, there is a normal human reaction to adverse experiences, and we mustn't pathologize that. But of course, sometimes it can reach in and become a disorder when it needs more specific care. Now, again, when it comes to the issue of terminology, um, the term spiritual abuse is one which is very much up for discussion. Some people uh, are really concerned that it's, it's a form of Erastianism. It's uh, appealing to the state and the already areas identified in law about abuse to intervene in the church. That's a legitimate concern. Um, but at the same time, what you will find is that victims and survivors like the term because it identifies in powerful words the depth of what they are experiencing and suffering. Now, we've got to be honest, we can be neglectful of care of Christians who are struggling with the issue of trauma as a result of abuse. And sometimes I think it's because we lack awareness, or sometimes we may just lack confidence and don't feel equipped to care. But I want to suggest this afternoon, this time together, that we should be in a place of confidence. There is a great deal that we can do, particularly in the initial stages. Now, we're going to go on to look at effects. But before we start on that, I, I want to put something out here that some of you may really violently disagree with. But uh, that's what a good seminar is about, maybe, isn't it? And we're brothers and sisters in Christ but I'm doing this to try and push home to you how potentially devastating the effects of trauma experienced within a church community as a result of abuse of power, whether that abuse of power is by leaders to the congregation or those within the congregation towards leaders or within the leadership. Those dynamics are running all of the time. If we think, first of all, of trauma in terms of childhood abuse. Now, childhood abuse can occur in many different ways. It can be physical, sexual, psychological, material, neglect. Uh, all of those areas are covered in statute law at the moment. But how utterly devastating it is to be five years old and exposed to that on a regular basis when you're kind of developing as a human being. And of course, the effects of adverse childhood experiences can run right through your life into adulthood. Indeed, unaddressed will run right through to the grave. And one of the really shocking things about childhood abuse experiences is that they take place within a context that generally society sees as a place of safety, protection, nurture, love, and care. Now, I'm not drawing a straight line from that to spiritual abuse, but if you think for a moment where abuse of power or spiritual oppression takes place, it takes place within a Christian community where we all say we believe the same things. We sing the same songs. We say amen to the same prayers. We listen to the same ministry. We speak about love and grace and compassion and kindness. And so to find yourself in an environment like that, where suddenly the system or the leadership or the congregation 
turn against you. It becomes, again, utterly bewildering as this place for fellowship, love, and grace, and compassion can become a place that is extremely brutal. Now, in terms of the effects, we're going to look at some of these, and we, again, we'll go through these fairly quickly, so I want to major on care um, in this time together. Um, we, we, it's not all black, right? Um, it's interesting in, in the area of current understanding on trauma, one of the newer things that people talk about is post-traumatic growth. You go through a, a life-death situation. Maybe somebody comes back from Afghanistan or wherever they were serving, and they've had the most horrendous experience. But in processing that, it gives them a new appreciation of life and values and things like that. Well, we know by the grace of God and through the providence of God that traumatic experiences are not always bad. God meant it for good. Romans 8, 28 is always true. God is always working in our lives uh, for our good and for his glory. And so we get verses like the one there in James 1, uh, which speaks about how God deals with us, often how he deepens our faith through adverse experiences. And Paul's own testimony at the beginning of 2 Corinthians is hugely significant. And um, he, he, of course, in that chapter, he speaks about being so devastated about what had happened to him in Asia uh, that he despaired even of life itself. He had suicidal ideas, but he finds great comfort in God. And the comfort he receives, he now says, becomes essential to his own ministry. So not everything is bad, but trauma does affect us. We have to realize this. If you put your finger in a vice and you screw it up tightly enough, it does not matter who you are. You may be a super fit triathlete, or you may be somebody who gets totally out of breath walking up a simple flight of stairs. Enough pressure, you will get pain, you will get bruising, and enough pressure, your finger will break. And that's because that's how God's designed us. And he hasn't designed us for trauma. Our minds, our emotions, our bodies were designed in Eden to enjoy God in an environment free of sin. Now, trauma is evil. We have to say that today. Trauma is not just about bad decisions, bad management, bad planning. The root of trauma is evil, and it has an effect on the way in which we're wired by God in terms of how he has made us. So classically, when it affects the body, neuroscience today is showing us, it's the fascinating thing with trauma, you could put someone's head in a scanner and get them to relive their near-death experience in a car accident or being, I don't know, chased by a great white shark or whatever, and you can see the brain at work. And as a result of this, we have to acknowledge this, there, are just, there is just stuff that happens to us. It's not questioning how spiritual we are or anything like this, like your finger in the vice. It's stuff that happens to us mentally and in the body. So we have hypervigilance. It's, it's clearly seen there in Job 3, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only torment. We're, we're, we're always on the lookout for danger. 
Dissociation, we may drift away from the present to escape memories from the past when we're triggered in the future. It's a way of protecting ourselves. There may be flashbacks, a noise, a sound, a smell, an environment going to a certain place. I know people in ministry have had brutal times in churches, have moved on, but just to drive past that particular town or city on the motorway is enough to bring back a flood of devastating memories. This is what happens to us when evil affects the mind and the body, nightmares as well. So it's a kind of fragmentation, and along with this, naturally, there's anxiety, despair, depression, lowering of mood, and often a lot of struggles in the body. It affects behavior as well. So we begin to get into situations because we've been hurt that we try and avoid big thing with trauma is that we make ourselves small. It's self-protection. We want to get away from the cause of it. And this has huge pastoral implications because if the context for the abuse is church or it's ministry, it's very difficult when there is this drive to avoid similar circumstances and contexts. But avoidance is very, very common in trauma, as is isolation, reluctance to trust, and the whole business of being silenced. Abusers will attempt to silence people, and being silenced by abuse is appalling. There's a very interesting book written by a lady called Kitty Hart Davis. She was uh, survived Auschwitz, and then she survived actually Belsom as well. Uh, a credible woman. She's still alive today, as far as I know, working for the Holocaust Memorial Trust. But in the story that she wrote, she speaks about eventually arriving in England, where she had some relatives. As soon as she and her mother, who had both gone through more horror than we can ever imagine, got off the ferry, uh, the relative came uh, and he says, listen, I've got some young children, uh, daughters, and whatever happens, he says, I don't want you ever talking about what's happened to you. And she said, everything I'd been through, that was the worst. Trauma seeks to silence. And within that silence, it can cause huge difficulties. We may seek pleasure out of pain. And sometimes the way in which people may do this to cope with the legacy of trauma can be very destructive. Um, it affects thinking and emotions. Uh, and this matters to us very much as Christians. We have profound feelings of powerlessness. Uh, there's shame. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt is authentic. It's legitimate. Guilt is the response to when we have done wrong. But shame is what happens when others impress upon us a standard and a value. Uh, Mark Maynell's book, uh, Darkness Be My Friend, I think it's called, is very, very helpful on this distinction. And there's grief, often there's grieving, grieving for the days before the trauma. My life will never be the same again. I will never get back to where I was, and it can be profound grief. And of course, there's anger. And sometimes, again, pastorally, we don't like this idea of people being angry. We want to rush to forgiveness and reconciliation, but trauma is evil, and God ultimately is angry with abuse. And that can be a massive liberating thing for somebody who has experienced abuse. To know that it's named as evil and to speak of God's response to that. And so sometimes we have to allow people to be angry. And that can be very difficult for us pastorally. 
confusion, disbelief, and of course, stuck. People often can get stuck in the trauma memories, part of the brain we think where uh, the real memory of what actually happened at its worst is. Someone described recently as not having a sell-by date. So something that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago can, under the right conditions of being triggered, can be as real in the moment as it was 40, 50 years ago. We need to be aware of these things, but primarily we're concerned with the spiritual concerns, of spiritual effects. So people will inevitably have questions about God. Why has God allowed this? Where was he? Can I trust him? You know, questions about our relationship with God. And often the question you find that traumatized Christians ask is, can I be forgiven? Because the experience they've had is one that's developed so much self-criticism and there's probably been layer upon layer of criticism laid upon them by the abusive context that they're in. And they find themselves isolated, then inevitably the question that gets asked is, can I be forgiven? There is often cynicism towards church and Christians as a result of this, and a withdrawal from the means of grace. If after all, you have been regularly criticized for the way in which you pray, or the way in which you may speak about scripture. When you turn to prayer, or you turn to the word, the legacy of that trauma can be hugely difficult. A uh, long time ago, I was helping a lady who'd gone through the most appalling abuse, uh, and one of the manifestations of that was a continual criticism of the way in she, she was being prayed. So much so that it, we've almost had to develop a new language in prayer to move away from the language she was using before. She said, every time I try to pray, all I can hear is my abuser. Well, often people who have gone through these experiences, when they present in our churches, they don't come with a big sign saying, I've been abused or I've experienced trauma and experiencing trauma but they present in different ways. Some may come up to you straight away as I've had, and it's almost like somebody wants to get you by the throat, but the question is, how do I know I can trust you? It's the anger response. It's a bit, be a bit taken aback when a complete stranger comes into church and asks you that, but invariably, they're really being very honest about what's happened. But often you get the, the opposite effect, which is people are very quiet. They slip in, slip out. They're very furtive. They're torn, it seems, between wanting to be present, but deeply, deeply cautious. There are many manifestations of trauma, and I think sometimes, actually, the more you work with Christians who are damaged in this way, the more of a sensitivity you develop for this. And, of course, sometimes the Lord may just give us discernment that something is wrong with someone. So what do we do? How do we care? These are some preliminary considerations. Um, they're pretty obvious, really. Uh, the first is, this care is spiritual care, the care that we offer. What do we mean by that? Well, I always go to John 13. I think this is massively challenging, and you've got the words there. But they begin, don't they, in that most striking word, uh, phrase, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He had come from God, was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel, and of course washes the feet of the disciples. 
Now, John goes on, and I haven't put the words up there, but he says when he finishes doing this, he asks them a question. Do you understand what I have done for you? You have called me teacher and Lord, for that is rightly what I am. But if I, as your Lord and teacher, have set you this example, well, you now are to do as I have done for you. Now, think of the context. Who is Jesus washing the feet of? Well, of course, it's the disciples, but they're about to become the apostles, the most powerful church leaders that the planet has ever seen. And yet Jesus is saying to those who have the most power, this is what it means. You must follow my example. So the care that we offer is not to sort people out. It's not to right wrongs. It's certainly not to be defensive. The care that we offer is to show that love and that compassion, and we must above everything be foot washers. I really want to argue this should be the lens through which we seek to care. And our great aim is to see the glory of God overcoming the evil that has touched someone's life. It really can be quite a moving and thrilling moment when a, a Christian badly broken by life, uh, not just necessarily traumas within church, but within church life, but, but maybe through things in their childhood or, or, or through some terrible crisis in life. Uh, and they're so broken down, they can't look you in the eye. They're just staring on the ground. They can't string two sentences together. And you ask them, well, can you tell me one thing you know about God to be true? And there's that long silence. And eventually they say, I know he's faithful. That is a powerful moment. And that's what we look for. The glory of God in the healing amongst the ruins of damaged, broken people. One of the big things we need to be aware of is that we're in a wonderful position in local churches for what I would call whole church care. Care operates, at least perhaps should operate, on different levels. I love to think of somebody coming from an abusive situation, whether that's an abusive home or, or some terrible experience of life out there in the, the big wide world, and, or, or maybe from an abusive church. And they come out of what feels like a raging storm. Coming into our fellowship should be like coming out of that raging storm into the gentle warmth and comfort of a warm kitchen where the kettle is on and there are people there to care. And care happens on different levels. Corporate worship. When you've come from an abusive context into a context that is safe and healthy, experiencing the genuine, where relationships are unconditional, where Jesus Christ is the one who dominates and not some narcissistic individual in the life of the church. It becomes by definition already a place of healing to a certain degree. Then there are healthy Christian fellowships, uh, friendships, which are so important. And of course, pastoral care, which has to be genuine, honest and supportive. Now, one of the things you'll, you'll, if you look into this area, you'll hear about, or certainly if you work in school or in health service, you'll hear this phrase being said a great deal about being trauma-informed. 
Actually, it really does seem to mean different things to different people. There's a huge move at the moment to try and standardize this. But I think for our purposes, it means at least three things. Firstly, it means we need to be aware of just how devastating the effects of abuse can be. And I would put within that the experience of oppressive power in an unhealthy church. We need to be aware that it affects the whole person. That's what we've just been looking at. We need to offer the opposite of the experience that they've had. That's a major driver in being trauma-informed. Going to see a bit more about that in a moment. And we must be so careful not to re-traumatize. So for somebody who's left an unhealthy abusive church context and has come to us, really the very last thing they want to hear from us is, well, you've been here for a few weeks now. How are you going to serve here? Or, or you know, let's plug you into our, 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 a life group, a, a house group near where you live. All of that can be hugely re-traumatizing. And to really know how not to re-traumatize people, we need to listen now, I've put on the bottom there, love, hope, compassion, and kindness. I, I was in a meeting earlier in the year run by Traumatic Stress Wales, which is a big NHS initiative. It was lovely that they actually welcomed someone like me as a pastor from the third sector there. They said, no, we want people like you here. Churches are wonderful places because often you're the first point of contact. And they added, unlike us, you're 24-7 as well. But this was a statement from someone speaking about complex trauma in relation to uh, Glyndor University, which is a university in Wrexham that at the moment is trying to become the first fully trauma-informed university in Wales. Not quite sure what that really means. But in the course of talking about it, they said, really, it all comes down to this, love, hope, compassion, and kindness. I thought that is interesting. Isn't that what we're to be about? And then I discovered that there was a study that ran from 2014 to 2018 of veterans with diagnosed PTSD, but they separated them into two groups. One group received cognitive um, kind of therapy, the standard stuff that's available today, but the other group re received loving kindness meditation. Now, I'm not quite sure what that meant, other than it was loving kindness towards themselves and towards others. But the net result of that research, 184 sufferers of PTSD within that study, half of them went into one group, half went into the other group. The, the, the result was there was no difference between the two in terms of the benefits. Again, it's a reminder that the currency in which we operate as churches is so massively important and helpful in these areas. Well, moving on to more detailed care, the first stage often you'll find people talk about is the need to provide safety and stabilization. And I think we can do this. And I think we can do it well as God's people. Great example in the Old Testament is the life, of course, of Elijah. His perspective is he's the only faithful one in Israel. And he's come to a point there in First uh, Kings 19, off the back of the uh, the trauma on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them have been slaughtered. And then he hears that um, uh, his life is now under threat from Jezebel. And we read very simply that uh, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And he lies down under a tree and wants to die. But what does God do? He cares for Elijah. 
He cares for his body, provides him with sleep and food, a place of safety, and then he invites him to talk. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah is given permission to pour out his heart to God. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too, and so on. There is the provision here of safety and a context within which there is the opportunity to talk. Now, what does this look like in terms of process? Well, it involves time. And with some people, that measure of time may be years. It involves trust. It certainly involves confidentiality. And it involves us entering into that, that engagement in that relationship with no preconceptions. I think sometimes we can be guilty of having huge preconceptions about other people's sufferings. Oh, ultimately, they need to forgive. Ultimately, this is about idols. Ultimately, this is about lack of faith. But the trauma effect on the human personhood, remember this is evil, not just on how we think, but the body and everything, is so complex that we must be very careful not to go into the process of safety and stabilization um, with preconceptions about how it, we, we go in to learn and to walk with them. But in doing so, we are above everything to be Christ-like. This is the, coming back to what I said about being trauma-informed, it's about offering people the opposite of what they've experienced. And there is no better place to go than to seek to be imitators of Christ. And so we treat people with dignity. We offer love and compassion. Diane Langberg, in her book, Suffering and the Heart of God, and also in another book, she's also written on the counseling uh, survivors of sexual abuse. She speaks very powerfully about this incarnational care. And that's something that we, we really have to take on board, that we're dealing with somebody who is broken, fragile, and delicate. Everything about us is to be Christ-like. And we're to give voice, because trauma silences. So we build the pastoral relationship with a view to providing a safe place to talk. I have a friend, he's not a Christian. Uh, he's, uh, works in, he's a psychotherapist in Denmark, we meet him once a year, uh, and we, we enjoy cycling and pull over to a cafe, talk about trauma. It's what you do when you're on holiday. And uh, you know, he says to me, he says, you know, what I try to do is create a room in which people can be naughty. And my initial reaction as a Christian was, that's really bad. But the more I thought about it, actually, there's a lot to be said for that. There are so often things that we feel and we experience in response to trauma that we find ourselves saying, I couldn't say that to anyone. And yet the bearing of one another's burdens and ultimately bringing and pointing each other to the healing that is found not in us, not in a healthy church, but in Jesus Christ, involves creating an environment where we can be really honest about both what has happened and also how we feel. You see, I don't think we understand this clearly, but something happens when we put into words the deepest pains that we have in a context 
of someone who cares and is present and listening. Scripture is full of this, particularly in the area of lament. We must be careful with lament. During the pandemic, everything was lament. I don't think lament is a kind of let it all hang out. Uh, that, that reference there from Bruce Waltke in, in his book on lament, uh, biblical lament is too mysterious to equate cheaply with psychological complaint. Lament just isn't the opportunity to have a moan and pour out our distresses. Lament is worship. So it is the pouring out, but it's the pouring out in the context of almighty God and the knowledge of who he is and all he has done for us. And so for us to encourage people to give voice, we need to build safe relationships. We need to be patient. We never rush people. It's as if really they are allowing us to, to invite us in to their suffering and their pain. But in doing so, we build story, and story is important. And a great question to ask people is, well, well, what happened to you? Story is important for healing. It puts into a framework what sometimes is bewildering and beyond our ability to comprehend. And genuinely, this cannot be done on our own. We need help. And we need one another's help. So as we tell story, we own what has happened. I actually think there's a kind of shift away from being the victim to the storyteller that is empowering under God. The experience is validated. We start to be believed. And the experience is owned. Evil is recognized and evil needs to be recognized if we're to bring the healing power of the gospel to bear on each other's lives. And ultimately, when there is story, it can be brought to God. This process is sometimes very, very difficult. And people sometimes can feel, you know, you really spend time with people, you yourself will feel sometimes, I'm just making this worse. And people sometimes can appear lost in their trauma story, which is why I love this thing about providing points of reference. I remember years ago sitting in a cafe with a friend who crashed out a ministry and had been badly treated by other people, other church leaders. And as I listened to him, the question went through my mind, what does the gospel look like here? I think that's a really important question to ask. And we can transfer that into those of us who suffer when we experience the, the violation of trauma and the damage of trauma to ask these questions. What are the things you know about God that are always true? And I think of them like stars in the, in the night sky, years before Satnav and all the rest of it, when, when people used to go out to sea or they'd go across the desert and they needed to navigate. They navigated by the stars. Why do they do that? I used to love climbing years ago. They used to warn you, you know, if you're taking a, a compass reading on that rock over there, make sure it's a rock and not a sheep because it kind of wanders off. Rocks don't move. Stars don't move. And there are things about God that are always true despite what's been done to us, despite what's happened to us. And these things can become so powerful in the midst of our pain and our suffering 
So we can speak of anger. We can speak of deep regret. We can mourn powerfully as a result of what has happened. But we can also speak of God's sovereignty, his providence, his unfailing love, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, his faithfulness. And as we do this, we can begin to move our story into God's big story, which is a beautiful, powerful, and reassuring thing. Doesn't make everything all right, never will, but it does give to a certain extent that sense of understanding and confidence in God. Well, I mentioned about signposts. I'm putting this back in at the end uh, because it's really important that we don't think that we can do all this uh, under our own steam. There are plenty of uh, occasions when we need to refer people on who are more capable and competent in the area of trauma care than us. And we need to be aware of that to get help, ask advice. We should never be so um, full of our own sense of ability uh, to fail to do that. And the last thing, which I'm not going to talk about, we might want to pick it up, is that within all of this, there is a real need for self-care. As if you really get involved with deeply hurt Christians and others, it can have a really uh, powerful effect on you. And so there is a huge need for self-awareness in this area, but also for your own self-care. Oh, I'm going to shut up now. I've thrown out quite a lot there. And uh, they may well be things now that you, you'd like to ask or discuss and that we can, we can do this together. There is a, a roving mic at the back with Phil. And um, if you have a question or something, perhaps you'd like to raise your hand and we can take the rest of our time together in that way. Thank you very much. That was um, really helpful. Um, I hate to take a slightly off topic straight off, but the thing that comes, the things in my mind was pressing for me is slightly less the person where it's very clear they've been badly abused and more the person that comes, say, to my church and has a, has a story of, of abuse, say, from another church leader. And I know that the worst thing I could do is to sort of question it you know are you sure <laughs> because that sense of validating someone's experience i understand how important that is but i don't know if i should validate everything they say mm -hmm. and so i both want to be very sympathetic and show that i'm for them i'm actually meeting a couple on sunday evening who are basically saying what would coming to your church look like <laughs> because we're coming very bruised and harmed by mm -hmm. this over here. And I, and I want to say well, we, we, we want to provide that safe space for you. I genuinely do. But I don't want to have validated them in a wrong way or have kind of sold myself down the river where I might want to backtrack and mm -hmm. say, actually, it's not quite as simple as you. I'm sure you know that kind of scenario. I'd love some advice. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Thank you very much for that. Uh, all of this is incredibly messy, all right? I think we just have to say that. And, and there's never such a thing as an innocent victim, an innocent survivor, certainly in, in the sense of uh, abuses of power in church. There will have been things said. There will have been things done. I think all I can say to you is, is I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I think we do have to work at providing an environment and building relationship 
where there can be trust eventually to reflect on and consider. And that takes time. In, invariably, what people need initially is they, they need to feel they're safe and then they need you to listen because they need to be believed. But sometimes along the journey and the building of your friendship with them, there's opportunity for reflection. And I think the more we pray into it, the more God by his spirit shines the light of his word that not only highlights the evil that's been done, but enables people to recognize the sin in their own life as well. But I would say, we, I don't think we can force people into that. I think that's a work of God's grace within the process and the use of his word. Similar, similar to your previous question, uh, but um, knowing that somebody has got uh, has experienced um, serious abuse as a child, mm -hmm. and um, has um, in a church situation as well, um, has gone through um, serious lows, but now has come back into the church and wants to embrace God fully, mm -hmm. but is really, really struggling with these back memories and a lot of what you've said today just resonates totally with his experience what he's told us about um but also some of it is to the point that it's so serious um do we and he's even verbalized this um do i take it to the relative relevant authorities and Whereas a church, where's our line? You know, I mean, obviously you've got the safeguarding issues, but this is a elderly gentleman now. He's not um, a young man or a young child anymore. This is an elderly man. Yeah. And this situation uh, happened when he was a child. Um, but just really pastoring him through that mm -hmm. and um, his wife as well, you know, knowing what she knows about that situation. Again, that's a really helpful. There's two things there, I think, isn't there? You know, the, the one is just the the effects are there, which are, which are very big. Um, we, people talk about fragmentation happening within us. So, uh, classically, people who've experienced really severe trauma, and there are lots of studies done on Holocaust survivors with this. They classically live in two worlds. So there's there's the world of the horror which is absolutely real. And then there's the other world and they keep them distinct. And there's something like that happens, I think. And when people come into really the, the healing world of a healthy church where the gospel is dominant and the person and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ is the great thing, I think it does throw light into dark places. And the initial thing can be very painful, but we have to persevere. And when there's severe fragmentation, then I think that's we're, we're into the signposting area there. There are people experienced and skilled much more than we'll ever be in the area of trauma care who can genuinely look by God's common grace at how we narrow the gap between experience and memory because of what's happened, if you like, within our brains. Um, it's the same way as if you, you, know, you snap your finger in the vice, you need people that can do that. But the safeguarding issue is really always going to be there in certain cases. 
And, um, you know, I, it's great. Paul and, uh, and Sue are here from Church's Safeguarding Service. They would give a much, much better answers than myself. But I think what I would say is it, it, we need to be aware of this aspect that there can be a lot of a kind of abuse and certainly traumatic responses, which are sub-threshold, and we live with those, and we mustn't conflate those with the real stuff, which is requires the the, the, the law effectively and 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 the legal system. So it's it, again, it's a difficult area, but as with anything in church life, if we have a safeguarding concern, we have a, should have a safeguarding policy, a safeguarding officer in the church, and we must go to them. Yeah, a couple more over here. Going towards, use the term spiritual abuse, quite a lot of what we might put under that category has perhaps been institutionalized more than we care to admit. How, what would you say by way of advice to someone who's walking with an individual and or a community coming to terms with their own complicity in quite deep levels of harm? Well, first of all, I think deep down inside I'd rejoice because one of the terrible things about um, abuse of power in churches, particularly when there is leadership that is more tendent in, in the direction of, say, narcissism or something like that, there, there just is a complete inability to comprehend the damage that they do. And so if I've understood you right, you have a situation where people are beginning to be aware of the damage they've done. I think we have to rejoice in that. And then it's really, again, about being patient, because often the question is, why do, say, for example, if we're talking about what commonly is called spiritual abuse or an abusive leader, for myself, the question is always, why are they like this? What has gone on in their life? You see, this is why in church life, if you're a church leader, if you're not processing your own harm, I think sometimes it can provide a fertile territory to say, well, okay, I, I moved on. I've gone to another church or something like that. Deep down inside, you can say, whatever happens, they ain't going to do that to me again. And we can build walls. And as we build those walls, we can be destructive to others. And that's why self-awareness in leadership is so important and processing our own pain as leaders is so important. And I think actually we're a long way off that at the moment. So I, I don't think I'm really answering your question particularly helpfully, but others say I would rejoice that there is a, a measure of the light coming in and truth into that situation. I would definitely do everything to build the relationship and not to disengage from it. And I think much prayer, it's a spiritual thing, um, and perseverance and patience in the belief that, yes, um, leaders who've got it wrong can be, can be restored. I was struck by your phrase about trauma being a wound of the memory. Yes. Could you please comment on the role of forgiveness by the one who's been hurt, traumatized, yeah. in that process of achieving wonderful, full healing. It can be wonderful. Forgiveness can be wonderful, absolutely wonderful. 
But getting to a point of forgiveness can be a very long journey. And I think we need to be careful that it's not for us to force people ever to a place where we say, you need to forgive. Your problem is you must forgive. I think there are some things sometimes where the wounds are so deep and profound and we're genuinely bringing light into people's lives in terms of God's word and prayer that we have to go at God's pace and not ours. So forgiveness can be wonderful. Someone said to me years ago, I was in a situation where I was just totally bewildered by what had happened to me. And the question was simply asked, well, do you believe what was done to you was, was evil? was sinful. And I wasn't willing to acknowledge that. And they said, well, until you acknowledge that, you can't move to forgiveness. I found that so helpful. And this is why in, in trauma, we, when we become isolated and we blame ourselves and we're buried under mountains of shame, we need sometimes people to come alongside and say, you know, what happened was really evil. And that can be helpful in moving to the process of forgiveness. But forgiveness is, is, can be wonderfully liberating. Thank you. I know three different people who have had various encounters with um, abusive churches. And for each of them, just attending a church on a Sunday is a, is a potentially re-traumatizing event. One of them has stopped going to church entirely and no longer calls herself a Christian. Mm -hmm. Another stopped going for three months and has come back and is much healthier. And the other kept on going, but is spiritually in a really dark place because each Sunday mm -hmm. is re-traumatizing. Is it ever right to encourage someone to stop attending corporate worship for a time? That's a very relevant question. A friend of mine describes uh, church kind of environment trauma when somebody thinks of going perhaps to another church. She says, it's like revisiting the scene of a crime. I found that very helpful. Well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I, I think that the Lord gives us wisdom and judgment sometimes in complex pastoral situations. And yes, sometimes maybe a period of not going to organized church meetings, but church is more than the organized meetings. So we can do an awful lot outside of that in terms of just being there and walking with them. And sometimes it can be almost like the elephant in the room. We know enough to know they're coming on the back of something terrible, but we, we must go at their pace. They have to invite us in. We don't gate crash their story. And in some cases, I know cases personally where I've supported people, it's taken years until somebody really says what has happened. So yeah, I think we just sometimes, we, again, these things, they just throw you back on God. And to be honest with you, in, in some of the trauma stuff, you literally can feel like you're staring into the face of great intense darkness and evil. Uh, and that's why self-care is so important, but we must never, ever, ever give up on people. And we must be there at their pace. And, uh, and sometimes what I say to people, sometimes say, listen, whatever happens, I'm not going away. You know, we, we're gonna be here in the background around whatever. 
But the wounds from church sometimes can be terrible. And I think we have to get our own house in order. I think we have to say that. I've deliberately skewed this in the direction of effects and care. There's an awful lot we could say generally about uh, spiritual oppression. I think that's the phrase personally that I like because I think it's more biblical. Um, but sometimes those wounds can be absolutely horrendous. Uh, when it comes to referring people on, do you have any suggestions or tips on how to find more Christ-centered uh, help for that next step? Yeah, this is always a difficult one. It's when I upset people sometimes. You know, personally, if I'm in that state, I want a really good trauma therapist who understands the fragmentation of mind and experience. And uh, years ago, it used to be that, you know, there was a time when therapists would see your worldview as a Christian is the root of your problem. So we need to move you away from that. That has changed now. Most well, counselors are driven by an ethical code to actually work with your worldview. Um, so what I'm, it's a long way around of saying is that, you know, if you find somebody who's actually very, very good at helping people with trauma, who isn't a Christian, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I say that because it's not always easy to find a Christian trauma counselor. See, if you go on, you, you go on something like the Association of Christian Counselors website, you'll find lists of, uh, of, of um, counselors there. And often people will say, well, these are the areas I work in. And they can be a huge long list like that. And somewhere in the middle of all that list is trauma. Now, I, I personally think that trauma care is so complex. If it was me looking for someone, I'd be looking for somebody who maybe had a very, very small list and, and, and trauma was one of the big things. It is a very specialized area. And so frankly, sometimes we may live in a part of the country where we don't have access to somebody nearby. Although now we're with Zoom and Teams, it is a lot easier and a lot of therapy can be offered there. But um, generally I say to people, look at something like the Association of Christian Counselors website. Um, they, they have a high standard that people need to meet. There's an ethical code with that. And try to look for somebody where trauma is one of their main things there. But it is possible. You may be in a situation where there isn't someone like that, but there is a good trauma therapist who isn't a Christian. And the other thing, just quickly to say with that, never abandon people to like the counseling process. I know pastors, oh, you've got a big problem, right? Here's somebody to sort you out. When you sort it out, you can come back and join a house group. That is really bad pastoral care. You never, ever disengage. You have to respect there, there will be boundaries within that relationship with a counselor that really you've got to respect. So you don't sit them down and say, well, what did they say? You know, what, what did they ask you? What's going on? You know, it might be very tempting to do that, but you don't do that. If they want to talk to you about it, that's entirely different, but never ever just cast people off. I heard a talk about three years ago from a, a very uh, quite significant ministry in the UK. The guy was simply saying, you know, we're here simply to preach the Bible. So when you have a problem or difficulty, just go out, get yourself fixed and then come back and we can carry on teaching you the Bible. That is so bad. We're not to be like that. Um, you might ask this already, but what's, what's a good response when someone initially tells you about like a traumatic event? Mm -hmm. how, how should we respond initially? Listen 
Uh, I've had, I remember some years ago, uh, church I was in, there was a man there who suffered from kind of like chronic low-level depression and anxiety. And, and then one day he came to see me and he said, oh, I need to tell you something. And for two hours, he talked nonstop about how as a young man, um, he was a student at university and the call went out to help at, um, at Abavan. And he went there and he dug for days and he heard and saw things that we shouldn't really hear and see. And he'd never told anyone. And I think for that two hours, it, I was afraid to breathe. So I think when people start to talk, listen. And often they need reassurance because often when somebody has started to tell you something that's very deep and personal, they go away and they think, I shouldn't have said that. And they need gentle reassurance. And it may simply be that the next time you see them, you give them a big smile, it's good to see you. Something like that can mean a great deal of reassurance. So yeah, listening and reassurance, I think, yeah. Hi. Um, how would you suggest helping someone who um, has had major trust issues based on previous trauma um, and has become um, unhealthily attached or has misinterpreted the relationship with a primary pastoral caregiver without re-traumatizing them? So let me get that right. So somebody who's been very badly traumatized, has trust issues, but has become over-connected to a pastoral caregiver. Yes. Yeah, it can happen, I think. And one of the things we need to be aware of in this is the importance of that not happening. And so the building of boundaries. Um, there's, there's an excellent Christian book written by two Christian thinkers called just called Boundaries. Um, McLeod and someone, I can't remember now. But if you just look it up, Boundaries, you'll find it very, very helpful. What I tend to do is when, when it's obvious that somebody is wanting to talk, I'll say, look, we'll meet up once a week for an hour and we'll do this for six weeks and see see where the Lord is taking us. And and at first, you know, when I was first in ministry, I used to give people hours, you know, three, four hours, you know, like that chappy I mentioned, you know, hours and hours. And sometimes you've got to do that. If somebody is just suddenly, initially saying something, you've got to be sensitive. But regularly, breaking it down to about an hour once a week, and structuring, in other words, can be hugely helpful um, because it creates boundaries um, which are important. And also it provides an opportunity that you've only got an hour, so people tend to get down to it, which is which is good. The small talk doesn't tend to happen so much. But what do you do when that's happened? I, I think you need awareness within the leadership without breaking key confidentialities. And I think you try to draw other people in, but that can be terribly difficult because you may be in a position where you cannot tell the story to others. But you can do it in oblique ways. You can say, look, so-and-so is going through a hard time. Can you look out for them, make sure they feel welcome? That sort of thing. And of course, the biggest thing then they learn is that there are other people I can trust. And that becomes then that it's not just you as the primary pastoral caregiver are safe. Actually, there are a lot of people here who are safe. And that becomes a very beautiful thing in someone's healing.
Um, and congratulations on this set, by the way. Very well designed. Um, I was wondering whether... Oh, have you had any thoughts about dealing with a trauma sufferer within the church context where the suffering took place and try, trying to think about the, you know, the Christian model of repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, which in an idealized form of church should all happen within the church mm. and uh, that, that healing happens and closure happens within the church context. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have any thoughts about that or do you think that's just completely unrealistic? They have to get out of the situation. It's very difficult, isn't it? I think um, those are the things we long for and we look for. And sometimes God does that. And that's a great thing. Um, but it, I think as well within that, it, it's still predicated on relationship within the church. And if somebody has been effectively pushed to the margins through a abuse of power, um, suspicion has been raised about them by the leadership all sorts of things being said, and maybe there is a kind of passive-aggressive move to get them out of the church. I think then it's very difficult, very difficult. Um, we need to be aware that sometimes people can move on in themselves, but we must never get into a situation where my real entering into full freedom in this, again, depends on someone else. And I think the end we've got to deal with the person in front of us yeah i would say graham's behind this project of uh, writing a book effectively isn't it with affinity that's coming out in march and uh, christian focus so he told me to say all of this and uh, several of us had a little bit of contribution to it so do look out for it it'll be coming out hopefully in, in march and uh, what's the title graham challenging leaders great thank you We've got a situation in our church where um, we have a trauma sufferer who has confided in one of our pastors uh, and no one else in the church um, and said pastor um, is retiring. Um, how do we encourage um, yeah. a handover, some sort of handover so that a person could be fully supported? Yeah, this is a really good question because it can happen, can't it? And some of these caring relationships you know the law can move you on to another church and how do we handle endings and that I, I think we have to be honest about it with people and really again it's about trying to widen the net of trust often when people have really had trust issues and they find here is someone i can trust they will stick to them like glue that's my one minute warning <laughs> and uh so I think, again, we, it's prayer, it's modeling Christ-likeness amongst others who we feel can help. But as, as well, I think we have to talk about it and say, I'd love to you to find others who can support you and trust, uh, build trust with. Yeah. Is that about it, Phil? Is it time-wise? Time for one more, I think. Okay. Uh, you talked about making sure a safe space for people. I was just wondering if you had any things in particular that you've done, either in even just your layout of the room or things that you'll say, things that you won't say, preparing leaders for certain things. Is there anything particular? 
great question again. I think Marcus's book is quite helpful there, and the book that's coming out in March is going to be helpful as well in this area about creating healthy church cultures. It's a tragedy, but we really do have to think about this. And if we don't think about it and take it for granted, that's often when things can start to go wrong. There's two ways of looking at this. I think, how do we develop healthy church for, for everyone? And uh, so things like leadership, accountability, accessibility to leadership, those things are really helpful to be established. Uh, in some cases now, people are talking about the need for process in the life of the church. So if something goes wrong, or I feel something is wrong in the life of the church, what do I do? Um, so classically, it would be a whistleblowing policy or something like that. Uh, I think we're, that's still quite a long way off for a lot of us, but it can be so helpful and reassuring. And we should have transparency. Um, we're brothers and sisters together. We're not building an empire in our own name. We're building the kingdom of, of God we trust. And so there needs to be just that healthy church environment where people can ask questions, people can challenge and not be immediately regarded as a troublemaker or whatever. The second area, though, is how, what do you do when people have been traumatized? And I think we need to be flexible with them. So some folks might like to arrive during the first hymn leave in the last song, whatever, that's fine. Some people may want to just sit there and not say a word in a, in a house group. And we need to be mature enough to say, that's okay. We, we're so pleased you're here. Um, you know, there's no, so we have to allow people sometimes to behave in ways which are a little bit challenging. But if we get that behind it is a deep pain story, caused by evil, and we're longing to see healing and the glory of Christ in their lives, I think we'll be willing to put up with all sorts. Yeah. Phil, thank you so much. Um, can we give Phil a round of applause? He's done us a great service there, hasn't he? Thanks for listening to this resource from FIEC. You can access more resources for church leaders, including articles, videos and podcast episodes on our website, fieec.org.uk.